Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. I have read 17 tweets. I've watched two TikTok videos and read a Facebook post. I've seen a couple of uh, those TikTok videos with some Russian military guys talking. And even though I don't speak Russian, I feel like I'm an expert now, at least for social media purposes. But just in case I'm not, figured I might talk to somebody who, who is. Matt Shoemaker, he's former DIA intelligence officer in the Trump administration. And he is uh, an officer. He's a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy Reserve. Matt, welcome to the program. How are you? Pete, glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Certainly. So are you amazed at how many other experts there are all of a sudden on Russia and Ukraine uh, just over the last four <laughs> days? Well, it, to be honest, uh, being involved in Russia, every t- time something blows up in Russia, I, you know, I see this time and again. So on the one hand, no, I'm not surprised. But on the other, you know, it's always kind of fun to see this happen. Right. So first off, I, I had no idea what the is it the is it the Wagner or the Wagner or the Wagner group? What is this thing? Sure. So we're translating it from, from another language, so there's always going to be a little bit of a, a disparity between how you choose to pronounce it. Uh, from my experience, I've, I've always known it as the Wagner. They, they take it from, from the German, and they even call their mercenaries, um, uh, they call them musicians in a, in a sort of perverse sort of way. So, so I usually call it Wagner. That I, so that was one of the things I have seen in some of the reporting, and I didn't understand why there was this reference to musicians instead of soldiers. So that explains it. Okay. And so how then do we pronounce this guy's name, who is the leader of the orchestra? Yes, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Yevgeny Prigozhin. Okay. So what is this thing? What is this, uh, as I understand it, just a band of mercenaries? Yeah, that's the long and short of it. They're they're essentially a, a private military organization, kind of like a, if you remember, uh, I believe they were called Blackwater during the early um, Iraq war that the Americans sort of used. Not exactly comparable, but for the purposes of our conversation, they're they're a private for guns for hire, if you will. Um, and and this group, this Wagner group, was headed by this Yevgeny Prigozhin guy, who is a a friend of Vladimir Putin, or as, as close of a friend as one can be with with a tyrant like like Mr. Putin. Um, and so, interestingly enough, especially over the past year in particular with regards to Ukraine, but over the past five years in general, the Wagner Group has been extraordinarily popular in Russia for its successes on the battlefield in Ukraine, but also for the way that they've conducted themselves in contrast to how so many people in Russia view the regular Russian military as having really flubbed up this situation because of their corruption and all that. So Mr. Prigozhin has been seen almost as like a hero figure in Russia because he was able, through his successes, to push back against the, the failed leadership, as the Russians see it, of the Russian military, and to a certain extent against the leadership of Vladimir Putin himself. Now, yeah. if you remember when this first kicked off, about a year and a half ago, Russia passed a law that said you are not allowed to criticize the conduct of the war by the Russian military. Anyone who protested, anyone who said anything bad against the Russian military would be thrown in prison or fined substantially. 
One of the reasons why Mr. Prigozhin is so popular in Russia is because he really pushed that limit. He would go after the leaders conducting the war, such as Defense Minister Shoigu, such as General Gerasimov, who's the chief of the general staff. So he was kind of seen as this figure who was able to get away with pushing against the, the failed leadership in Russia. So that's kind of what's going on here, and that's the context that we see what's going on. So are there other mercenary bands like the Wagner Group? There are a few of them in Russia that they're far smaller and they're nowhere near as, as powerful, but, but but there are a couple. It's just a weird sort of template to kind of think about in the way that they're engaging in this war effort, but they're kind of outside the bounds of the Ministry of Defense? Yes. Uh, it, it, there is some overlap because they are heavily, the, the Wagner Group is heavily dependent on getting equipment from the the military obviously there are only going to be so many howard excuse me so many artillery you know guns and so many tanks that they're going to be able to get on their own that they can't turn to, to the military for um but they 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 exist outside of the regular military structure but they are dependent on them to a certain extent and that actually has been a point of friction um at least that is what Mr. Pergozin has been claiming, is that the military has not been giving Wagner the equipment and the ammunition they need to succeed. And contrast that with the fact that the military has, been, has failed and has been so corrupt in its conduct of the war, the only ones, according to Mr. Pergozin, that were succeeding were, was the Wagner group, so they should be prioritized in the equipment that they get, in the, in the funding that they got, and he was claiming that they weren't. And that was actually one at least he claims, one of the reasons why he conducted this rebellion, this mutiny um, against the, the military leadership. What were the other reasons he stated? So he's, he stated a few reasons, one of which was that, um, it, it, at least according to him, is that it, it primarily stems from the fact that it, it failed leadership, especially from, from the military side of things. He's, having, trying, he's trying to fit within the context of Russian law at the moment without going too far outside of it and conduct a full-blown coup d'etat, if you will, um, to overthrow Putin himself. He, he at least claims that he wants to make the current regime in Russia work within its current structure, even if that means throwing out the, the military leadership that's currently conducting the war. He, he claimed that the, the Russian military actually tried to conduct a an assassination attempt, if you will, on himself, um, I believe it was on Friday, um, where he claims that the Russian military attacked his headquarters, tried to assassinate him, and that was one of the catalysts for why he, he felt that he needed to go into Russia itself to try and, if you will, decapitate the military leadership and replace it. Um, so there are a couple different factors going on here. He's actually been angling himself, at least for the past 12 months, to eventually succeed Mr. Putin himself, because no one in Russia actually knows what Russia is if Mr. Putin is not in charge. No one in Russia can tell you, you know, what that answer is. No one outside of Russia can tell you what Russia is without Mr. Putin. And so Mr. Prigozhin is setting the stage, if you will, to try and push aside any, any competition of when Mr. Putin eventually does leave, that Mr. Prigozhin could, could, you know, quickly and easily slide into the upper leadership. Right, so he's he's trying not to anger Putin at this point, but trying to decapitate the the Ministry of Defense. Well, unfortunately, there there, there was no way of avoiding angering Mr. Putin by by doing something like this. Right, uh, Mr. Putin has found himself backed into a corner, and actually, in his twenty four years of of being in charge, this is probably the most serious threat that Mr. Putin has ever faced to his leadership and to his role. Even outside of the early days 
of his rule when they were dealing with the che- second Chechen war, for example. Um, this, this certainly is, is one for the history books. Um, it, this reminds me a lot, in fact, of the way that um, Mr. Gorbachev was eventually shoved out of power in 1991. If you remember, you know, we're reaching back into the archives for this one, but Mr. Gorbachev faced a coup himself in August of 1991. It failed, and he held on to power for a further five months or so. Mm-hmm. But he was so seriously wounded in terms of his own prestige, in terms of his own legitimacy, that it all just fell apart afterwards. So I have a feeling that this may actually be the, the early days of, of seeing the end of Mr. Putin. So I, I heard Russia described as, it, as it's currently uh, constructed as essentially a whole bunch of different like crime syndicates just held together by Putin and fear of, of Putin and losing control and, and, and being targeted. Is that, is that an accurate read? Yeah, that's that, that's certainly the, the short answer of it. The long answer of it is, you know, the, the Russian government, in all of its forms, going back all the way to the days of the Russian czars, have, in a certain sense, kind of always operated in this sort of almost mafia state-like organization. It really, there's no real comp, uh, comparable situation in the West um, that we that we have when looking at um, how a modern functioning government. Um, operates, you know, even back in the late 19th century, the the British, when they were the the, the superpower in the world, they they oftentimes scoffed, if you will, at the way that the the Russians are conducted um, his government, and they they would scoff and say, this guy considers himself to be the leader of the Russian Empire. So it, it, just the way that the Russian government sort of um, operates, it's always it's always been a very odd sort of mafia esque style of government. I'm speaking with former DIA intelligence officer in the Trump administration, Matt Shoemaker. He's a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy Reserve. Uh, Got a couple more questions on Russia as well as China, and these are your areas of expertise, but also in the Navy. Got a question about the submersible, too, and those microphones. All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's military surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. I want to welcome back former DIA intelligence officer in the Trump administration. He's also a lieutenant U.S. Navy Reserve, Matt Shoemaker. We're talking about uh, the the Russian coup uh, that was led by the Wagner Group and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, I think I got that sort of close to correct. And, okay, good, good, good. Well, I, I am like one sixteenth Russian, I think. So I'm just tapping into those uh, those ancestral roots. So uh, why why if he was making such a a good push down to Moscow, would he turn around and abandon the effort in less than like a tenth of a Scaramucci? What happened? Absolutely. That is the question of the day. And all of this really comes down to trying to get into the mind of Mr. Pergozin. What was his actual goal here? And that is something, it, it seems almost as if that there's, a, there's a, a big piece of information that, that is missing from this. Like from one perspective, we, we understand what the goal was, at least the stated goal, of get the Russian military to get its acting gear and to support Wagner. 
At least that's what Mr. Pergozin is claiming. And from Mr. Putin's perspective, he wants to stop, obviously, the rebellion. He wants to retain on to power. And then somehow they came up with a secret agreement through the help of Mr. Uh, uh, Lukashenko over in um, Belarus, who's the president there. But the, the results of what that agreement are have not really been released. So, so there's a bit of information that, that you know, everyone's trying to, to discern uh, and read the tea leaves on. Um, and, and, you know, from, from what I gather from this is that uh, the reason, if I, if I had to, to go out on a limb and say why uh, Pergozin stopped um, the, the uh, coup, if you will, was I, I honestly think that he, um, on the one hand, if, if, if his only goal was to remove the leadership from the Ministry of Defense, being Mr. Shoigu and Mr. Gerasimov, then if, those, if that agreement was that both of those individuals would be fired, which they have not yet been fired yet, um, then in that case, he failed and he made a mistake in stopping his, his coup. If his goal was to shake the foundation of uh, the, Russian, the current iteration of the Russian government, he has succeeded in that. I, I, what I'm going to be looking for over the next week in particular, but over the next couple months in general, is if there's evidence of purges that are going on in the Russian government. I don't think Mr. Putin right now knows who he can trust. If, if he, Mr. Putin, um, thinks that his rule has been shaken and his legitimacy has been shaken, which he has worked 24 years to solidify, then he needs to find out who in his administration, who in his inner circle he can not only trust with his own security, but also with rooting out any of the rot that he sees in the rest of the government. And I don't think he knows, he, he Mr. Putin, knows who that is right now. So, so that's kind of what we're dealing with in terms of trying to discern the tea leaves right now. Yeah. And as I understand it, Putin is not at all a paranoid guy, right? I'm, that's, you know. <laughs> uh, and that, that's, that's a little bit of a loaded question. The, the, Russian, uh, the, the makeup of the Russian government has, has, even back to the Soviet days, almost been founded on the concept of being paranoid. Um, and, and the way that the Russian government, even back to the Soviet days, it, you know, in the United States, we have a system of checks and balances with the three branches of government, right, to try and keep the, the government in check to make sure that no faction gains too much power. The Russians, and even during the Soviet days, kind of had a version of that where you had the, the Politburo as one section of government. You had the security services, such as the KGB, as another faction of government, and then you had the military as the third faction of government, and all of them kind of jockeyed, if you will, and two of them would kind of team up now and again to try and make sure the third version didn't get too much power. And, and I have a feeling that a similar situation is, is developing here. You've got the presidential administration with Putin, you've got the security services such as the FSB, the, FS, uh, the SBR, and the GRU, which would be the security services, and then you've got the military again as these kind of three factions of government all trying to keep each other in check. And, the, you know, the foundation of that really has been, has, has been put into question over the past few days. All right, uh, real quick, I saw this story, and I, had this, I think I had the same question. I, I think you may have uh, said it on Twitter or maybe uh, in a message to me, but, like, when the submersible was, went missing, and then we find out after, you know, four days of searches that, uh, oh, no, there was this uh, sound that the that the Navy microphones had picked up or something. And I thought, why are we telling people that? Is yeah, that a absolutely. problem? So, well, so for, for the listeners that don't know, the, the, the uh, one way that you, you track 
submarines, enemy submarines, is through acoustics and, and underwater, you know, listening devices. And one reason why that's really important is, you know, if you're Russia, for example, and you have a lot of uh, nuclear-armed submarines, uh, you want to get as close as possible to the United States or to the enemy, whoever the enemy is, uh, without being detected. So in the event of nuclear war, you can launch your missiles and the enemy will have the shortest amount of warning before they are destroyed, right? And so we have acoustics to try and prevent that from happening, from, for giving us as much warning as possible that, you know, a nuclear submarine might be on the way. So when these reports were coming out that the, the Navy, you know, might have heard what sounded like an implosion, it wasn't a definitive sort of thing, well, it, to me, I, I myself was slightly irritated by that because it signals to Russia, it signals to China, hey, you might want to avoid sending your submarines through this general area because you might be picked up on sounds and you might be, you know, you know, found out where you are. So it, it's one of those things where it just makes national security, makes defending this country a little bit harder. And it's like, that's your tax dollars at work. So it's, it's frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, so not only um, did you do uh, a lot of work European, uh, U.S. European Command uh, with Russia and Ukraine and such, but also China. And so I got I to gotta ask you real quick, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing about the influence uh, that China has apparently had uh, on one Hunter Biden and his, and his father? Yeah, that, that's, uh, that, that's just a, a very hairy situation because you're not just dealing with foreign policy at that point. You're dealing with corruption at the highest levels of government. So just from a foreign policy perspective, uh, you know, that's going to give the, the Chinese a lot of leverage. And it's not just leverage against, you know, Hunter Biden. It's not even just leverage against uh, President Biden. Because of the corruption and the potential, you know, cover-up that might go into that, that's now, uh, you know, leverage that the Chinese might have against anyone who might have had a hand in helping to cover up the corruption on the American side. So, it, it, you know, from a Chinese perspective, that's a smart idea. That you, that's exactly what you want to do from, a, from an intelligence perspective. You want to make sure that you've got dirt on these people and you want to make sure that you can keep them on a short leash so that, you know, they can, they can do what you want when you want it. So it's, it's, it's a very sad situation if it ends up being true. Um, and, and, yeah, that's, it's, it's not a good spot to be. Yeah. Lieutenant Matt Shoemaker, U.S. Navy Reserve, former DIA intelligence officer in the Trump administration. Thanks for your time, sir. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, sir. We'll have you back. Thanks for your time and, uh, and your service as well. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. You can also hit me up on the Twitter machine, at Pete Callender, uh, where I have this message from Dark Helmet. I, I don't think that Dark Helmet of the Spaceballs fame, but... Uh, but maybe related, says, Pete, is it possible that the $6 billion that the Pentagon found was uh, found? You heard this story, right? They're like, oh, hey, look at this, $6 billion. That was actually paid to the Wagner Group for this coup. And then Prigozhin laughed all the way back to their current position just north of Kiev, asking for a friend. All right. I've actually seen this uh, conspiracy theory uh, floating around. Right, okay, we'll just call it a hypothesis. Um. Noah Rothman runs through some of this stuff over at National Review. Noah Rothman uh, writes for Commentary Magazine. I think he's actually like the editor or something over there now. But he runs through a bunch of these different hypotheses. And this was one of them. Um, 
let me see here because I'm all right. Well, let me just start. I'll start at the beginning. So uh, he says what really went down in Russia over the weekend and why Prigozhin's forces stopped just 200 kilometers outside Moscow and abruptly gave up their, quote, march for justice abound. Right. Hypotheses abound. All of them are unsatisfying. Right. Which, of course, then and you heard Matt Shoemaker, Lieutenant Shoemaker, just say, like, there is this missing piece we don't know why, right? You're trying to figure out the puzzle and you got a big missing piece. And so what is the natural tendency of humans, I think, to do in a lot of cases like this when there is this absence of information, people start plugging it in with different priors, right? Different biases, ideas and such. And then you spin out of that belief. And once people believe in something, now you can't move them off of their opinion. Because now it becomes like an integral part of who they are. This is what they believe. And once they start telling more and more people, now they're invested in this. And nobody wants to say that they were wrong about something. So uh, that's how a lot of you know theories, conspiracy theories like this, take root and calcify. So some speculate that the whole point of the Wagner Rebellion was for it to end in the bewildering way it did with his soldiers returning to their camps and Prigozhin accepting the terms negotiated by the Belarusian despot, Alexander Lukashenko, and then going into exile in Belarus. And from there, this theory goes, he can mount another attempted assault on the Ukrainian capital under more advantageous circumstances. If the threat Prigozhin posed to Moscow was superficial, the Russians put on a pretty good show of it by blowing up roads and dismantling bridges, right, ahead of Wagner's advance. For those who are attracted to a chauvinist reading of geopolitics, which assigns the origins of all events overseas to machinations behind closed doors in the United States, well, the CIA is probably to blame for the crisis in Russia, right? In the early hours of Prigozhin's mutiny, former defense intelligence analyst Rebecca Koffler posited what she admitted was a low-confidence theory that Prigozhin was working with the U.S. and NATO— She said the whole affair could have been a staged operation, either to justify the mobilization of Russian society or to destabilize it. And she became more confident of that after Prigozhin withdrew. What this did, though, was expose the hollowness of Putin's regime. And... He goes on to say Prigozhin demonstrated that Moscow's proscriptions on dissent against its policies in Ukraine only apply to those unable to raise an insurrectionary private army, right? Lieutenant Shoemaker talked about this, all of the laws that they passed to stop people from criticizing the Russian war effort. He showed that Russian cities can be sacked without firing a shot and that a seditious militia can kill Russian guardsmen and down aircraft on Russian soil without consequence. His rebellion has inspired rare criticism of Putin in the Russian press, some of which has complained of the state's vulnerability to outside forces. And I guess if you squint, you can see why the U.S. would welcome the narrative that Russia is a paper tiger. But here's the thing. Washington needs there to be someone in control at the Kremlin. And as for Putin, why would he voluntarily expose cracks in Russia's society and establish the predicate for observers to envision the contours of a post-Putin Russia. So like this, this is a, I understand the, the, the desire to, to try to figure it out and to, you know, test the theory, but under this theory, 
America would want the Russian state to collapse, but then the Ukrainian war would end, which I thought I thought the American government was happy fighting. Doesn't that seem to be at odds? Oh, hey, real quick, before I forget, Carolina Readiness Supply is prepping for its annual Heritage Life Skills event. It's coming up in July, and you can learn how to be better prepared and self-sufficient in the event of any emergency. Things like homesteading, canning, water storage, radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables, all sorts of stuff. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners, all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness Supply can help. Get your tickets now at carolinareadiness.com. That's carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? So the head of the Wagner, oh, sorry, the Wagner Group, Prigozhin, claims that the impetus for his march on Moscow was a strike on his positions behind the front lines in Ukraine by Russian forces, an assertion that also happens to bolster the legitimacy of his long-running gripes with the Russian Ministry of Defense over its conduct of the war. But examinations of the site of that alleged attack have not proven his claims. According to the Washington Post reporting, the real trigger for his mutiny was a defense ministry effort to fold all of Russia's paramilitary forces into the military, depriving him of command of his lucrative private army. Why did Prigozhin fold when he did? Oh, and by the way, he does concede that that did have an impact um, on, on his march. So why did he fold? The UK-based Telegraph reports that Russian intelligence services threatened to harm the families of Wagner's leaders if Prigozhin didn't call off his advance. Some have speculated that the same conditions that allowed the Wagner group to capture so much Russian territory unmolested, the... What? Sorry. The lack of Russian military personnel on the ground, the defections of whom uh, Prigozhin was likely counting on, that this also convinced him to give up the ghost. In other words, he didn't think he was going to be able to cover that much ground that quickly, and so he was like, oh, whoa, whoa, I didn't actually think I was going to win. <laughs> Some U.S. intelligence sources told ABC News that concessions were made concerning the future of one of his arch enemies, that is the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu. Shoigu. Anyway, maybe. The deal worked out by Lukashenko, that's the Belarusian president, the deal that he negotiated allows Prigozhin to preserve his control over much of the Wagner forces. And here's the key, the lucrative pillaging in Africa and the Middle East. His regime suffered the most serious challenge to its authority in decades, talking about Putin. Its brittleness was put on full display. If the challenge to Putin's legitimacy goes unanswered, more challengers will arise, possibly with the support of Russia's Putinist elite that that denied Prigozhin their support. He can't afford, Putin cannot afford to demonstrate to the military that there are few consequences for this kind of a bloody insurrection. And by the way, a weakened Putin might actually be more dangerous. So what Noah Rothman posits as the simplest explanation for the events in Russia may be that Prigozhin was just trying to save his own skin and enrich himself in the process. And Putin got backed into a corner that he did not anticipate being in. In his first public comments since ending the mutiny, this is from Reuters, Prigozhin repeated his frequent claim that Wagner was the most effective fighting force in Russia and, quote, even the world. Okay. Um, hang on a second. 
Two words. Well, three, really. Battle of Kasham. You remember that, Prigozhin? That was where, like, 30 American troops, U.S. Army Rangers and Delta Force commandos, repelled somewhere in the neighborhood of, what, 400, 500 of your forces? You remember that? It was in Syria. Yeah. When the U.S. launched, this was 2018, the U.S. launched Operation Inherent Resolve. Its goal was to destroy the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS. U.S. forces sought to degrade and destroy the notorious terrorist organization, but the conflict eventually evolved into a proxy war between two superpowers as Russia committed its military forces to defending the regime of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. So much for the red lines. The U.S. was allied with Kurdish fighters and the Syrian Democratic Forces against the common enemy of ISIS. But the regional conflict involved an intricate web of disparate factions and objectives. But, but against that background, here's the important thing. This is by Mac Caltrider. Dude. Mac Caltrider uh, over at CoffeeOrDie.com. Uh, they write about military affairs and such. And um, he talks about the, uh, the Russian back or against this backdrop of fighting ISIS. Russia and the U.S. had to open up a line of communications because they were essentially fighting a proxy war. And so they'd avoided direct conflict until this battle occurs. And they start seeing, the U.S. start seeing all of these troop movements. They see the Wagner group amassing with uh, some of these uh, fighters uh, on the other side and the, yeah, Bashar al-Assad's fighters. And then they attack the outpost. And so they send a rapid response force. They, don't, they get there with like 16 uh, troops, a couple of vehicles. and But yeah, they, they beat the crap out of them. They repelled them and they wiped out half of the Wagner musicians.